0: Hey guys, and welcome to Personality Bingo with me, your host, Tom Moran. So this week on the podcast, we have the amazing Dylan Coburn-Gray. Dylan is a writer uh, and a performance poet based in Dublin. Uh, His first three plays were with the Dublin Youth Theatre, uh, and you're probably going to best know him from uh, his uh, smash hit play, Boys and Girls, uh, as well as that Black Catfish Musketeer Love Plus Everything Not Saved uh, So much wonderful work He's also worked as A director A dramaturg A deviser. Uh, he's done music for stuff I mean he, he really does it all And uh, what a gentleman He was um, I think me and Dylan It's fair to say We're like kind of Peripherally uh, aware of each other So it was so nice To sit down And uh, have the chats uh, here at Headstuff HQ, and my god is he not the most kind uh, intelligent and just lovely person so dylan if you're listening a massive thank you to you for taking the time to do it it was a pleasure to meet you and i can't wait to see you about the place soon uh, guys in other news uh, my play the belly button girl is coming back to the new theater and um, it's running from may 14th to the 19th so go and check that out uh, if you like this podcast i think you like the play they're kind of all coming from the same place in my heart uh, i think oh that was very earnest to say but fuck it it's true so come and check that out um support uh, Irish theatre I guess <laughs> that was very earnest too but uh, sure look we all know what we're dealing with here uh, come and check us out uh, we've got a great team involved Romana second directing Owen Lennon on the lights and the wonderful Ursula McGinn is doing our set so look we're surrounded by great company and uh, I think when you do that great things can possibly happen so come and check us out I'd really appreciate it as well as that Copperface Jackson musical is coming back it's very very exciting Um Probably the most enjoyable show I've ever done Truth be told We just had the best time doing it It's by the brilliant Paul Howard Who you'll know from the Ross O'Carroll Kelly book series And tons of other stuff It's got a great cast including Johnny Ward, Michelle McGrath Rosanna Purcell Stephen O'Leary Mark Fitzgerald Ah, I could go on all day But I won't Because I'm afraid I'm going to leave out just one person And that would be shameful As well as that I've got some stand updates coming up soon In Dublin City Centre uh, Catch me at Bingo Loco as well Where I am a kind of resident host comedian there uh, Really really, really enjoying all of that and uh, yeah, it's just, it's a lovely time, the weather's getting great in Dublin and um, thanks so much for all your support of the podcast, it's kind of going from strength to strength at the moment and I'm not sure why, it just is, which is lovely, Uh, we have a Patreon page, it's patreon.com forward slash personality bingo, go and check it out, we've got um, some brilliant uh, rewards there for people who uh, can uh, chip in our way, as little as two dollars a month makes a huge difference to us, I know that sounds like bullshit, I promise you it's not, it's a model based off soundness, I see our numbers that come in here every week even if like a handful of you are able to chip something our way It just covers those costs that do rack up when you're doing this for as long as we have Which is about 120 odd episodes, which is insane So guys, uh, thanks so much for all your support, it's so appreciated And I genuinely, genuinely, it means the world that you take time out of your day To listen to the wonderful people that I, I've managed to get on this podcast um, So, without further ado, here's another one Enjoy the wonderful Dylan Coburn Gray, playing personality bingo with Tom Moran and cobra and grey ready to play personality bingo here we go alright sweet so a quick explanation of how it all works I've got 60 minutes on the clock I've got 60 balls in here and I've got 60 corresponding questions I've also given you a sheet of paper with 5 numbers on it would you do me a favour and read out the 5
1: ok I have uh, 9 yeah. 17 right. 53 okay. 41 yeah. a blank space Baby And I'll write your name Uh, Anna 38 Nice Okay Was that a song reference That I didn't get Taylor Swift Okay sweet
0: Well done Blank Space I'm terrible it's at It's really good Is it <laughs> Yeah I'm so bad at
1: references Okay
0: And it's very alienating For people when I don't get Their references Because they feel shit But like, it,
1: I'm the one That should carry the shame For this moment I mean I feel like Particularly in the case of Tay Tay I mean that's yeah. on you T-Swift That's on you <laughs> I'll, I will take that um, Okay do me another
0: favour And um, fill in that blank baby Or whatever that obscure reference was <laughs> That lad
1: uh, Okay I'm going to put in a 27
0: 27 Any reason? It's my age Okay sweet Yeah Good a reason as any um, And I should say that If all six of them numbers do come out That means the tables are turned You get to ask me any question In the whole wide world I'll give you a totally honest answer <gasps> Okay Alright Sweet So uh, let's give it a spin Cool All right, here we go. First out the gate, we have number nine. Do you have it? I do. Oh, right off the bat. Yes. (laughs) Okay. Starting to sweat a little in here. Uh, All right. Um,
1: Number nine. Do you have a favorite quote? Oh, God. Um, Yes. Mm. I have a couple. Um, I have different favorites for different contexts. Yeah, that's okay. We can take Uh, a few.
0: I I like a good quote. So
1: So I'm a huge uh, Michael Ondace fan. I think that's how you say his name, you know, the kind of Sri Lankan Canadian author who wrote The English Patient. Okay. Um, which then was that film. But it's kind of a weird one because his books are very um formal in the sense that, you know, like there's all of these hard cuts from location to location and the prose is as much a feature as what's actually happening and everything. And that's kind of the first thing that goes when mm-hmm. you turn one of his books into a film. Sure. Um. So I was always a little weirded out before I'd seen the film. Actually, no, I still haven't seen the film. I think I just tell myself I have because there's always like romantic clips of it playing on things when right. they talk about how it won an Oscar. But um, anyway, he's his writing's beautiful. It's incredible. Um, And there's a couple from him. You know, he has a really beautiful poem called uh, The Cinnamon Peeler's Wife uh, which people read a lot at weddings mm. um, which has uh, something at the end I can't actually remember but is yeah that's a great wedding quote mm. um, I think my favourite book by him is a book called uh, In the Skin of a Lion which is kind of about the immigrants who built Toronto and there's an amazing moment in it where he's just kind of meditating on the fact that like he's writing a book and he says uh, the first line of every novel should be Um, There is an order here, very faint, very human, it takes time, something, 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 something like that. Uh, Which I just think is a really great little kind of, uh, I don't know, bracket quote for the whole artistic endeavour of like, making shit up as you go along and hoping people enjoy it. Um, And I kind of had a vague thought of like, I'm not mad on text tattoos, but if I was ever going to get a text tattoo, that it might be very faint, very human. And then someone pointed out that that kind of sounds without the context, like uh, a dog meme. You know, you know like a dog being like Oh very faint Much human And I am like Oh fuck That's that's so true Yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> Wow well, Yeah cause it's it, Yeah it just it, It's like you've you've Told a
0: joke without the punchline Yeah you know, yeah yeah, yeah Pretty much uh,
1: But like he's a Quote factory I mean he has another Beautiful little poem Called the Ah, uh, oh, I can't remember What it's called But anyway the closing line is It's just about his friends And visiting his friends And I suppose in midlife As they see each other less But the closing line is I don't know what to say About this kind of love But I refuse to lose it Um, which is like, oofed, yeah. Yeah. Go on, Michael.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That first quote, does that resonate with you in terms of your own artistic process? Um, I'll I'll frame it selfishly. I'm in the, so I've written plays. um, I'm also really interested in writing for film and TV as well. Mm. And so at the moment, which is something that I find less of a need to do in my fear writing, I feel, but more of a need to do um in the more um for the screen stuff is is to outline a little bit more yeah it, it just feels like it, it needs a little bit more structure for me um but I don't work well within like a rigid structure but but something what's your relationship to structure and pre when when you're writing yourself
1: ooh. I'm resisting the urge to say good question because uh, Claire O'Reilly keeps lagging me off for that because it's a way of buying yourself three seconds without <laughs> sounding like you're hesitating. Um, but that is a good question. Um, I, I, I'm i very structurally minded. I really I I really like structures and thinking about kind of uh, the form of a play and having fun with that. Mm-hmm. Equally, I'm not big into like three act structure and, you know, kind of that very rising action, you know, inciting incident, always save the cat type model. Because mm-hmm. I think, uh, I don't know, I kind of feel like very often, I mean, you know, you, you've you definitely watched the film where you've watched it and been more conscious of the structure than invested in what was actually going on. Do yeah, you know? Yeah, I yeah, mean, yeah. I think we've all had that totally. moment. I think kind of sometimes that structure upstages anything you try to do with it because it's been so repeated. Um, But uh, but I haven't written much for TV, mm-hmm. so um, I haven't had to do that as much. Um, And yeah, I don't know, maybe I've, I'm starting to find it a little funny, maybe in terms of the conversations in the UK sometimes where people kind of talk about my writing is oh it's lyricism it's lyricism and it's lyricism and you go you don't understand like I'm a Lego nerd which is like I'm thinking about what color the blocks are and putting them in this order and then reversing the order of the colors and this that and the other so it is just I suppose interesting to be really obsessed with structure and then have and nobody realize there is a structure there <laughs> <laughs> yeah. paradoxically is that an answer
0: yeah it is <laughs> I'm interested so when, when when you're in the UK and they're, they're talking about this lyricism what
1: If someone said that to me about my writing, I
0: wouldn't actually know what they meant.
1: Do you know what they mean? Oh, I mean, I absolutely know what they mean, which is it's that cliche of Irish writers. is like these passive wankers who like kind of sit around, you know, kind of endlessly describing with beautiful, you know, kind of uh, mellifluous words, you know, their situation that they're fundamentally powerless to change. Um, And again, I kind of feel there's a historical irony in being told off for that because it's like, well, if we all think for like 30 seconds... We, we might come up with some reasons why an appra- a colonised people feel like they lack meaningful agency to, you know, transform their circumstances, right. <laughs> you know, yeah. type thing. So, I mean, um, I don't think it's just an aesthetic preference. I think it's, and I mean, like on a really concrete level, it's the monologue play thing, you know, which is like, oh, Irish writers love monologues. And you go, no, we can only afford to write monologues because personnel, you know, like actors are really expensive. You don't want to ask your mates to. Work for free. And then you do anyway. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly.
0: But at least then they get loads of lines. <laughs> yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Right, right, right. Love it. Okay, let's give it a spin. Yeah, let's go. All right, here we go. Number... 46. Do you have it? I do not. No worries. Number 46. Do you believe in an afterlife?
1: Mm. No. Mm. Uh, I was raised secularly. I think kind of... I don't know, like, I think we're the first generation to really get that. mm um and so yeah don't believe in anything Um, and try to kind of keep that quiet because I think sometimes it can feel like quite an aggressive thing to say to people you don't believe in anything as though there's an implicit thing there of whatever you do believe is hoop right
0: yeah uh, yeah and it's interesting And I'm sure even within your own secularism Like the the statement like I don't believe in anything Is a stark statement and, yeah. and probably not representative Well I don't know I don't want to put words in your mouth But not necessarily representative Of what a lot of secularists or atheists Or whatever it might be Oh yeah Believe Like I'm sure you believe in loads of things But just not like What was so fundamental to the way our, My parents and my grandparents And probably most of ours Grew up within you know Which is like the framework of the Catholic Church And like
1: Oh yeah 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 <clears> I mean sorry I, I, I mean I'm aware that's like kind of a deliberately balshi way of phrasing it, but it, it but it is clear because very often, you know, there is that conversation you have with your mates, you know, around drink too, which is a thing of, you know, like, oh, well, obviously I'm not Catholic, but I know there's something or, or I saw a ghost or this, that and the other. And yeah. All of which I think is so interesting, but uh, I have never done any of those things. Yeah. <laughs> I've never seen a ghost. Yeah. I've never felt someone was talking to me from the other side, but then I've never really lost anyone. So I don't think. Uh, there's anyone on the other side who would prioritise talking to me. So it might just be that. Sure, <laughs> sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, if they have, like, the, the, the genie
0: in the lamp of, like, three wishes, you're not there, man. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Not, yeah. <laughs> um, what about... um? Yeah, so that's really interesting. Okay, I'm really interested in ghosts, okay? Okay. I actually was talking to someone the other day about this. I keep having, like, work meetings with, like... I, I signed up with a new agent recently and we had a meeting and, like, for the first... Like forty five minutes of it, we just talked about ghosts, and and like we didn't really talk enough about work, but it was kind of the best meeting because like that was the point. Like it was great that we connected about that. But so, right, if you're in a if you're in a in a context that would be like traditionally horror movie scary, like I don't know, a rural old house in the dark, the power <laughs> goes. Are you are you like? Do you feel fear of something in in that scenario? I know it's very hypothetical.
1: Oh yeah. Oh yeah, I mean like I was up in Anna McCarrig last year earlier this year. Oh in uh, in in November and uh you you do get that thing of cuz like old houses do just make noises. Yeah. Um so uh as like whatever about what I believe, you know like uh, I think kind of your uh the hairs on the back of your neck believe their own. <laughs> they have their own elaborate <laughs> thing worked out. Um, and and so when you're like
0: in that scenario and you're like, Yeah, it is a bit spooky, like what if, if you go the level deeper of like what you're afraid will happen or what you're afraid you see or what you're afraid that reality might be, what what is it?
1: Oh well, like I'm a very jumpy person. So I mean, I think I don't even need a ghost. I literally just need there to be someone in the room who I haven't spotted and I'll freak the fuck out. Yeah. Um and also like uh, particular to that that house is the fact that I think the second last time I was there, um uh, <laughs> there was this older Australian woman who kind of uh, uh, I think decided if she got through her week's residency without having someone uh, it would be a missed opportunity and so she worked her way down the list of the eligible men until she got to me and uh, and I think kind of she drunk half a bottle of whiskey one night or something and kind of found myself in this really bizarre situation of having like this woman you know kind of massaging my shoulders but like sticking her hands down like into my shirt and kind of like tweaking my nipples at the dinner table in front of a group of people um, all of whom assumed I was into it in that weird way of like I mean if you're a man you're obviously into everything or whatever Uh, so they left us alone Um, and I had to kind of find a way to like very I suppose tactfully fend her off but like she was so fucked she couldn't get to bed so I had to bring her up to her room then I think in that weird complex way of like oh I'm having to look after you even though you're making me really profoundly uncomfortable and um, then she tried to pull me into the room on the doorstep uh, and I had to, I literally had to go, oh look, and make her look over her own shoulder into the room and then fucking run down the corridor to my room. And luckily she didn't know which room I was in, but I heard her walking up and down (laughs) looking for me for the next uh, five, 10 minutes. And uh, so, I mean, Yeah, I mean, I tell that as a funny story because like I think, okay, so gender flip that. It's a terrifying story of like grotesque sexual assault. But I didn't feel particularly unsafe, which is the key thing. Mm -hmm. And I think the key differential maybe sometimes when you do gender flip, I suppose, that traditional. Dynamic or whatever But what I would say is In that particular house Late at night That's what I would be afraid of Yeah <laughs> Is hearing someone walk hearing the scary Australian woman Walking up down the corridor outside Going Dylan <laughs> Dylan
0: Again I've not been to Anna McCarrick But I feel like I've definitely Someone who's been has Was telling me like
1: That is like You know One of the, the haunted places Oh yeah No like And the ghost has a Twitter account Really? Yeah I need to give that a follow Oh yeah <laughs> What? Miss Warby And again like I mean you know, just leaning into that or steering into the skid of that story a little more because that is a sideways thing to have thrown in there. Um, uh, Like the ghost is quite sexually threatening as well. Like there's a weird dynamic to that house as well. Like, I mean, the first time I was up there, the ghost tweeted at me. Yeah, I'm going to slip into your bed tonight, which again, I was like, OK, you know, funny joke, because I'm a man. I also don't love that. Do you know? Yeah. Yeah. Hold on. okay, sorry. I, so there's a Twitter account. The ghost has a
0: Twitter account. So, okay, so can I stop me whenever I say you're the wrong, wrong thing. So someone who works in Anna McCarrick has made a, a a Twitter account on behalf of this ghost that people have told stories about for years. And now that they, they tweet the people who they know are in residence at the guest, so it, it, we assume it's one of the staff?
1: I mean, if you're asking me, the person who believes in nothing... <laughs> Yes, that's what's happening Alternatively, the ghost has a Twitter account <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You know, I mean, let's keep our minds open You know, to the full field of possibilities <laughs> How big is the staff at Adam and Carrick, would you reckon? Uh, oh God, like, it's a brilliant bunch of them You haven't been? I haven't been Ah, uh, get up there Yeah Because if you write, I mean, like, it's yeah. just yeah, It's unreal yeah. Um, Because, you know, it's just They do the meals You don't have to do your laundry Because, you know, you've just brought all your clothes So, like, you can't go off sideways into stuff Amazing That makes you feel productive But doesn't actually advance your, your 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 work Yeah Um, I think there's like Eight of them maybe Okay In the kitchen and the office And the <sighs> Robbie and the They're brilliant Yeah And they look after you really well And they really care Yeah um, cause And then cool. They just fuck with you on Twitter Well I mean The other possibility maybe Is I think that like It's an artist who thinks it's gas And they find out uh, They find out who's going up and then if there's a mate there, because I mean, on that basis, I think it's probably a theatre head because they felt like safe being like, ha 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 ha, weird, sexually teasy joke towards Dylan. He's up for it. Yeah. cast that is fascinating. It's a great mystery. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> All right.
0: Let's give it a spin. So, uh, number 29, do you have it? I do not. No worries. Um, When you think about your childhood, what's your most clear memory?
1: Hmm. <laughs> Really embarrassingly, uh, I remember quite a lot of my childhood via what books I was reading when, because um, I think unsurprisingly, uh, to anyone who knows me or has seen my plays or whatever, which is, I read a lot. I'm a big book nerd. Um, so, uh, like, I have this really vivid memory of reading Robin Hobb's Farseer trilogy uh, on a family holiday in Dingle. And now every time I'm in Dingle, <laughs> I'm just kind of like, oh, I think around here, I was probably around page 600 where the fool is doing that thing and Burk is kind of coming across for the sea to, you know, like the the out islands and, uh, yeah, um, which is nerdy and pathetic and all those things. (laughs) Because it's like, why would you pay attention to your real life (laughs) when you've got this, you know, fantasy adventure alongside?
0: Sure. Do you ever think about that? Like the, the why... Like you know, because I, I was saying to you off mic, I was like, I, I traditionally haven't been a big reader, but oh, yeah. it's something that I'm getting into now, and I'm really seeing the joy of, it. and I'm also seeing how actually this will fundamentally make me a better writer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even though right now I don't have a great grasp to like you know go after a novel or anything like that, I, I just don't feel like I, I maybe have anything to add to that conversation right now. Mm. But, um, but I can like what seeing other people's craft on the page is just has to be good for you, right? Mm. So do you... And when I think about me and my writing, I I think I have an idea why writing is appealing to me. And th- there's loads of reasons and it's layered and I enjoy it. But, I, you know, like on a psychological level, I, I bet there's a good reason. Do you ever think about that for yourself within the context of, of reading and like... Or was it just a pure, like, joy thing? Or is there that element of like not to go down the well-trodden path of escapism or something like that?
1: No, I mean... Yeah, I mean, the really honest answer and I was kind of chatting uh, about this recently to a writer pal who who finds writing quite difficult. They don't enjoy it. Uh, they really enjoy having written plays mm. like in retrospect. Oh, I'm really glad I did that. Uh, but they don't enjoy like the actual work of sitting down and going tappity uh, tappity tap, um, which I do. Mm. And I sometimes feel like uh, a little unusual in that I'm a writer who really, really, really likes writing. Mm. Um, I think, more of my peers find it a really angsty process than don't. Um, And like, for example, like when I did the 24-hour plays, I was in a room with Kate Heffernan and and Rasha Gone and I just was having these school flashbacks to pretending not to have done my homework in order to (laughs) fit in (laughs) because I had finished my play uh, and Kate and Rasha were like, oh, it's so hard, it's so hard, it's so hard. And I was... I'm having a great time. <laughs> I'm finished. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then because Kate's a pal, like she, she caught me rapid, you know, like which is I had finished. And she went, "You're finished, aren't you?" And I went, "Yeah." Uh, but um, but no, what I was chatting to this pal, and and I think what I said was because they're really funny and they're really socially graceful. Um, and I'm a bit weird, and I think sometimes maybe the appeal of uh, reading and then by extension writing, if you're uh, if you're a bit weird, is that it's a small controllable world. <laughs> You know, which is it's a world where you understand every element or there is the potential to understand every element because every element is deliberate Mm -hmm. uh, and isn't just random and coming at you all the time, like Mm -hmm. the real world. Um, And that then I think maybe that's the appeal of or maybe why I like writing is because for me, I generally feel like my writing is a more polished, in control version of my social self. Whereas I think if you are a very socially powerful person anyway, uh, you are very exacting on your writing for exactly that reason, which Mm -hmm. is that... um, it has to be as good as you in person. Ah, oh. that makes sense? Yeah, it does. Sorry, that was quite a circuitous. But yeah. I don't know, where do you feel you, do you feel does that resonate with you or anything or?
0: Um, well, it's really interesting. I think so like I, I would imagine, you know, an outsider might describe me as being socially graceful. I, w- I would be I would be fine in con- I have absolute like my anxieties about social situations. I also can do them quite well. Mm. Um I really have realised I'm in a really privileged position at the moment of um, living by myself Mm. which which really suits me and it's come about in a uh, an unfortunate way in many ways, but my, my lovely grandmother passed away uh, okay. in September, so that the house is in the process of being sold, which is quite slow. Um, so I'm kind of like looking after it, and it, it coincided with my rent in town being mm. up, and so it kind of made sense for me. So I'm living in Castleknock uh, in a wow. weird, scary, old haunted house, okay, so as far as <laughs> I'm concerned. So this is all of my zeitgeist, yeah. yeah. And um, but it's one of the things I realise I really like, and it really suits me creatively. And I, I kind of knew that because I haven't been to Anna McCarrick, but I we kind of go on self-imposed mm-hmm. like you know Airbnb you know <laughs> retreats yeah. and and things and and that like solitude is really important for me and i think one of the ways i really uh, writing for me can be like just i don't write particularly autobiographically but it always comes from like a feeling or a thing that that is probably very real to me and it's a nice way for me to kind of rewrite the real narrative of my life i feel like that so like that element of control absolutely uh, there's also an element of like the lone wolfiness of it that is very appealing to me like for the first time I applied with a, a pal to write something with them and while it was really exciting we were sitting down and like kind of brainstorming a little bit and we are like I'm interested in this party and she's like well I'm interested in that but what about this and we're you know we're, we're finding mm. we're, we're finding where we match and where we don't Um, and then I could also like I can already like imagine the young anxieties and and fears about that because you know, and what I wanted to ask you, maybe to bring it back to you for a moment, is about you, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you have written plays where you're not involved in a role other than the writer, but you've also performed in your own work as well. And I have. The, the poetry work. Yeah. So... What what's the difference when you're sitting down with the intention of, like, this is going to be for me, Dylan, to, like, perform to the world, whether in a theatrical context or a, a poetry context, mm-hmm. versus say, a project like City Song, which we spoke about at the beginning of the show, it, it sounded like it's one of the ones where you've been able to you don't really have a job aside from writing it
1: Yeah I mean, even bouncing off the end of what you were saying there about collaboration, because the other thing I do is I'm with Malaprop, so I, I write a lot with them so there's these kind of three strands of the stuff I'm writing for me the stuff I write on my own for other people and the stuff I write with other people for other people mm. and I think like you were saying that finding out what you're all interested in is a key part of the process um, and, I th- and I think I feel like there's a really natural kind of permeable boundary between the two because writing is a process of finding out what you're interested in and then you just extrapolate that to everybody else when you're collaborating you know because uh, I don't feel much pressure or I try not to feel much pressure to know what things are about or what the thought is going in. I think, um, yeah, I feel like the the value of writing, like you say, is sometimes the process of discovery, mm-hmm. of working out why this thing kind of tickles or itches or, do you know, mm-hmm. um, you have to orbit it. Um, What is the difference? I mean, I think the really practical, boring one is I can be more inconsiderate when I'm writing for myself because I can write things that are as dense as I want them to be. Um, in the poetry sense, you know, kind of like really, really tightly rhymed or whatever. And I don't have to worry about someone else uh, or not even someone else being able to do it, but it being, you know, reasonable to ask someone else to do it because, you know, I think, you know, some of the fun of poetry is, you know, complexity for complexity's sake. And then having things come back into focus after, you know, kind of a weird little sideways riff. Mm. Um, but you try to really save those effects for when you kind of need them in a play, whereas in a poem that you're going to perform yourself and you're not going to be inflicting it on someone else. Um because you were saying, I think uh, off Mike, you know, just that uh, city song is casting at the moment, um, and that's been really interesting because it's it's just, uh, I I sat in for a little bit of the process. It's been really interesting, I think, to remind yourself that uh, uh reading is a really stressful thing for loads of people. Because I love it, mm. um, and uh, and and I mean, I think my style is very much like written for people who read as fast as I do, um. And and actually then you, you, you miss out, I suppose, on seeing loads of really fucking talented actors at their peak because, you know, they're, they're best on their feet, you know, and that it's kind of it's uh, I don't know, it's just good to be reminded to step outside your own taste and your own little weird niche that you've carved or whatever for a little bit because mm. there were people who were incredible and doing incredible stuff on that floor. And it's just I don't know, like I appreciate from the other end that, you know. Aud- auditions are horrible but like uh, I've never been produced before so it is just such a privilege to get m- to meet all these actors and kind of chat through because you know um, I don't know we live in a city that's full of really fucking talented people and I'd love to work with all of them and you just never get a chance to so sure. it's amazing that way and uh, anyway ramble ramble ramble
0: yeah what was it like being on the that side of the table and, and seeing people come in and interpret your work like is it <clears throat> is it is it as you said all the positives of it like meeting the, these these people and I'm sure you know when when I've shared work with people and I'm sure you've had this experience where someone illuminates something that yeah well not even that it wasn't what you meant but maybe you weren't aware of it and it's just when someone shines a light in it through their personality their talent whatever it might be you're kind of like whoa yeah
1: yeah I mean I think generally speaking that's what you look for in a script which is that when you hand it to actors you go oh that's what it's about right you know (laughs) (laughs) that's their job that's not your job you know um and and I think it's really lovely to have, you know, kind of ongoing collaborators. And then there is just that excitement of seeing new people because they surprise you more. And I think when it's a good relationship, they continue to surprise you. But either way, you know, like that initial surprise is a really gorgeous moment. And it's really good for your brain you <clears> know, just to go, oh, this is what the writing can be. Because, um, yeah, I mean, like, I think, again, maybe a reason I like writing is because I like thinking of a script as unfinished. You know, it's a recipe you know, it isn't the work. The work is the thing you see on the stage at the end, whereas, like, I know some people who really fuss over their pauses and their dashes and their and their brackets, you know? Yeah. Um, and I suppose, like, my undergrad is in music um, and I spent three years arguing about textual fidelity to scores and or texts and everything, and I kind of just burned out on it and kind of came away with a sense of, oh, my God, I just don't fucking care. <laughs> and... uh and so yeah, and I kinda think actors really bring that home for me, that like they're an exciting bunch. Sure. Do you ever find that the musicality
0: um your musical background ever again, this is this is a selfish question. All the questions are selfish, just to say. Oh yeah. Uh, <laughs> do, do you ever find that the the, the you know, the musicality that, that is obviously within you, you know, having studied music, whatever that might be, ever um hmm, controls the way you write like are you when you're you know reading it back or, or, or you're writing like and you know you're either you know reading it back to yourself out loud or the voices in your head whatever it might be like do you really hit, do you really go sometimes I find myself really going for like this rhythmic thing and I'm like hmm like this is fun for me and this feels like I'm like untangling like a piece of knot in a really satisfying way but I'm I'm not sure <laughs> how much it's like serving and how much it's actually going to land
1: yeah yeah R- rhythm's a really funny one because uh it's it's really powerful, but it is also lulling um and Katrina, who's directing city song, I think is really wise to that um and she's really good at shocking actors uh, who are i think getting into the groove a little too much mm. where you're kind of i think you're enjoying the rhythm at the expense of sense and it becomes a little masturbatory sure um uh I always feel uncomfortable saying this because it feels like potentially a more sexually aggressive thing coming from uh, a dude. But uh, Claire O'Reilly, uh, my pal, you know, very evocatively calls that "deep throating the text," um, <laughs> and and it is just such a great phrase, you know, that <laughs> I I do find it popping into my head, but I I don't always. Uh, let it out so you try not to do that (laughs) (laughs) unless it's called for uh, which sometimes it is Um, but yeah I don't know because I think my interest would always be uh, rhythm's going to sort itself out Mm -hmm. so I say you write it and then you let people ignore it because it'll do something even if it isn't the way you imagined it I think maybe I feel the musicality more on a structural level because music I studied musicology and music is really good for getting you thinking I suppose about structure and how structure means because you know, um, there's a composer whose music I'm not entirely mad on, Peter Maxwell Davis, but he has this great soundbite about how there's no melody so beautiful uh, you can't fuck it up in execution. You know, which is this sounds brilliant, you know, like if if played by, you know, kind of a, a plaintive violin in this uh, uh, register. Um, if you put it on a trombone, it sounds comical, you mm-hmm. know, in in that in fundamentally. And I think that really translates to playwriting and storytelling so well which is there is no story so interesting you can't fuck it up by having a really ham-fisted bit of exposition by having a really me monologue that you can't fuck up by having you know a really bit of, a really shit bit of acting you know mm-hmm. Um, so at a certain point it comes down to how you put those elements together to make sure they end up more than the sum of their parts, um, and that's a really freeing, you know, kind of I think first principles approach to structure. And one of my another one of my lecturers had a great soundbite, which is like my version of three act structure in terms of transformation, which is just uh, there isn't a structure, but the golden rule is that every new element you introduce should make you think differently about every element you've already experienced. Okay. Yeah. Say that to me one more time. So. Um, every new element you introduce should make you think differently about every element you've already encountered. Mm. And that's exposition, you know, which is that's the thing of you're supposed to find out stuff along the route of a story that makes you feel differently about these people, you know. And, And there's a really crude version of that, which is like the bad twist ending, which is they were all ghosts. (gasps) <gasps> Spoiler. Yeah, uh, um, and then you have to retroactively look back and reinterpret everything you've just watched in light of that. Mm-hmm. But that's quite a crude version because then if you watch it again, you already know the big twists, and it's probably less interesting. Mm-hmm. The really good twists are the ones where you can watch it again, and it's as interesting, if not more. So, right. Um, but I think on a really simple level, that's a really powerful tool because it applies to structure as well it's like if you're going to introduce a dance sequence what function does the dance sequence serve not just in and of itself but in relation to what you've already seen you know like how does it recontextualize? and mm. and I feel like that's a really musical way of approaching writing does mm. that make
0: sense yeah it does, yeah. does have you ever directed your own work
1: yeah but only of necessity I'm not a director okay. um, I'm mentally blind um, I probably shouldn't say that because uh, I'm not but I have very poor mental imagery. I um, am, I completely <laughs> feel your pain. <laughs> yeah. Um. I'm. Uh. When I was in DIT, uh with John Gunning, you know, the lighting designer. Mm. Um. There, w- there was a phase where he and another visual artist, of ours, uh, used to drive me nuts because they kept saying, "But you're a words person, and we're images people," and I hated that because I was like, "Fuck you! You're not inside my head. You don't know what goes on in my head." But they were so right, <laughs> you know, which is I am a <laughs> I am a words person. Yeah. Um. Uh. Or I think maybe. Um, to be really wanky about it I'm a time person because mm. the thing that I think maybe poetry and music have in common is that the thing you're really working with is time and how to stretch out a thought or condense it or this and the other and space is about boom it's all there in front of you parse it you know interesting uh,
0: that makes sense yeah it does when you this is your first time being produced yeah what what role do you have in the choice of
1: director or do you have a a, a part in that conversation um, I think that That conversation happened As part of the As part of the conversation Around Soho and the Abbey Co-producing mm-hmm. And I was Involved Yeah That's kind of all I really can or should say on that
0: No totally I was just curious as You know It's always that interesting thing It was kind of tied in with the question of You know Do you Have you directed And you know Obviously yeah If you were a words person And you know the, the, Oh yeah 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 it, It's that thing of like Um yeah, I don't know because as you said, you know, there's no well, there was a lovely quote about the, the the melody, there's no melody just so beautiful that it can't be <laughs> fucked up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like there's, but there's no there's no play <clears throat> so good that if if the the team like there's so many elements oh, yeah. that need to come together for any collaboration in any medium, but like theater especially, you know. Mm. Like if um and I, it it's just uh, I, I always it's always such an interesting thing because I haven't been produced either. So it's yeah. it there's a real loveliness in that in that you you have a degree of control cuz You know, you are still in that place where you know. We were talking about it earlier. Like, (laughs) there's loads of favors needed to be asked, and like you're you're getting people on board, being like, you know, do you believe in this thing? Do do our thoughts match about what it looks like? But when you go to that other level, obviously, like there's the resources are are, are greater. I assume, but also sometimes in in that, like, I imagine that
1: you could get lost or the feeling of being lost. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, to spin off on a thing that. That's gonna initially be about trauma and then about the industry. Is do you know that thing they say, which is uh, the problem with trauma isn't that it feels bad, is it's that it feels normal? Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. I haven't heard that. Early trauma. Heard, yeah. Yeah. You know. So the whole point is that it throws all of your criteria of normality out of whack. Right. Um. So that even if you grow up knowing your parents are alcoholics uh, and that you know fifteen pints is too many pints to have of a night you don't automatically, because you know that's wrong, know what is a healthy amount. Do you know? Mm-hmm. You might still think it's totally normal to drink every night and because you're drinking eight pints a night, you know, compared to 15, you know, that's half. So that's basically fine, right? You know, which is, you lack a criteria of normality, you know, you know, which is, your parents are your moral compass in the sense that if they're at the South Pole, you know, to steer North or whatever. But, um, and I think maybe that's, and and the real tragedy sometimes with that is that like when you encounter um, health it feels unhealthy to you. Um, And now to make that about being produced in the sense that like uh, the way the industry is, you have to do everything yourself. You have to write, you have to direct, you have to produce, you have to send all the emails, you have to try and get the press in. Um, And that, you know, like is a real shame because I think more people would have more success younger um, if they actually just got to focus on the thing that is their talent rather than having to drag up all of these kind of ancillary uh, epi skills alongside them do you know Mm -hmm. I feel like lots of people at 21 are already the writer they're going to be you know they have the clarity they have the the talent they have the the vision and they just have to wait like probably somewhere five to ten years really for their admin to catch up so that they can convince funding bodies to uh, let them be as talented as they are Um, and then maybe the problem is I certainly feel which is now for the first time that I don't have to do everything Um, I'm going this feels wrong (laughs) I have internalised my oppression as a theatre maker in the sense that I go, oh, this is easy. Something must be fucked up. <laughs> does that make sense? Yeah, it does. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I think maybe that's the real damage of like the model, which is it, it, it leaves you ill-equipped to do anything more healthy. Mm. Um, uh, so I'm trying to relax into it with moderate success but to loop back around to directing as well um, Katrina's fab Mm. Uh, I'm really excited to work with her and I think I'm spooking her out a little bit because uh, I keep not having any problems with what she's doing Um, and she keeps like really proactively leaving room for me to pick fights with her and I keep just going no like I will but I mean, I'm just not worried, and I think that spooks her out because I think she feels like she's operating in a vacuum. You know, like n- no notes is the only thing scarier than notes. Uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh. <laughs>
0: right. <laughs> well, what about um? That was that was really. Uh, gorgeous and insightful when we were when you were you know using trauma to contextualize like this industry economic (laughs) trauma yeah 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 but is that is that something that you're i don't know that just seemed particularly insightful to me is it something that you've thought about worked through
1: inter are interested in oh yeah all of those oh hugely i mean uh, uh it's funny i'm lecturing in trinity at the moment um Uh, because I was in the second year of a PhD programme which is why I live across the road Ah. uh, um, on campus Um, and uh, I was lecturing on three contemporary Irish plays um, *Heroine*, The Year of Magical Wanking and I Heart Alice, Heart Eye and after the second of those uh, lectures on The Year of Magical Wanking I had a a student approach me uh, who was British and say so I don't mean to be rude alarm bells already going off and I said but um I just wondered if you could recommend any Irish writers who aren't all, and uh, people are only going to have my voice for this. But there's a little kind of dismissive hand wave goes with this of like, ooh, sexual abuse and ooh, addiction and ooh, colonialism. Uh, and I went, hmm, uh, and they and they said or they went on to say because you know uh, obviously that's really important to you all. <laughs> uh, but you know I know all this. You know I know all about uh, trauma and I know all about. Uh, sexual abuse and I know all about uh, drugs uh, so it's just very old hat to me I wondered could you recommend anyone who doesn't do that <laughs> <laughs> uh, and you just go oh, there's a lot to unpack there isn't there Yeah. Um, and then very helpfully they capped it off by saying I don't know maybe it's because I'm English <laughs> yeah. uh, which was really handy because then I just got to go well if I were more politically angry about this I think I would say yeah you're speaking from a place of uh, profound privilege when you say that and they immediately shot back with them Well, it's college. Everyone's privileged here. And I just said, yeah, they are. Um, Even though I don't believe that. um, I said, I think that's one of those very alienating things that people say that makes you feel really lonely if you aren't really privileged in a college situation. But I did say no. Yeah, let's agree with that for the sake of it. Um, That's one of the reasons I'm not sure I want to stay. And I've since dropped out. Um, But... uh, yeah, I mean, I think like, sorry, that that's uh, that's like a little illustrative thing en route to answering your question, mm-hmm. which is, I think, if you're an Irish writer, you kind of have to be interested in trauma mm. because it's everywhere, right? Um, and I think uh, the really interesting thing about it is, I don't know, I was reading this great book by, uh, I think, oh, what, what's the name? Christopher Reed and Bruce Castiglia. If Memory Serves, Gay Men, The AIDS Crisis and The Promise of Queer Community or something like that. I've probably fucked up the academic subtitle because they're all really long. Mm. But he quotes this great thing in it, which is trauma is a failure of meaning. Because the whole point of trauma is that precisely you don't know how to make sense of it. Which means it doesn't necessarily feel bad. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the complexity and the shows I'm really interested in are the ones that reckon with that. That trauma is actually about all of the stuff you don't even realise is trauma around the edge. And I think... um, uh, I think when I see bad trauma shows, it's generally speaking someone who hasn't got much, trying to convince you it feels bad, right? Um, and that kind of feels to me like papering over the complexity or the real interest of it. Mm. Um, that makes sense. It Does
0: yeah, it's it's very it's a very interesting thing because like it's something in my own life. I've <coughs> recently, it, I just had a, <coughs> a bizarre like period of time before Christmas, and I've kind of spoke about it briefly on this before so um to not bore anyone who who consistently listens <laughs> but um i just remembered things from my childhood that i literally you know had forgotten yeah. like chunks days hours these mad things and like what you said i think that's what was so interesting to me about it was it you know for me it it, it arose in just like life and having kind of a quiet lifetime not a lot of work kind of the end of a relationship th- like think like things were changing it was a transitionary time that didn't necessarily feel very good but it kind of gave space for, for things to come up and you know it came in a in a, in a therapy session so I mean like the most yeah, obvious yeah, place yeah. where it could but and I was I literally just was like yeah and, you know the other day I remembered this mad thing and I explained the mad thing that that I and, and sorry, I didn't, I didn't um contextualize it as mad. I just said I remembered this thing. My therapist helpfully was like, "That's mad." Like, yeah. And and for me, it was so not. And it's so funny because if I I don't really talk about it loads of friends, but it, you know, it, on occasion, it felt right, like or, or helpful for me to be like, and "Yeah, th- this thing was kind of coming up for me." And and they're like, "Oh my god, that's so crazy." And for me, I'm like. Okay. <laughs> like yeah. Now I understand it might be weird, but and even yeah. now with with that knowledge and kind of intellectually it's starting to seep through, it still doesn't
1: feel mad. It still just feels like
0: that was Tuesday.
1: Yeah, that's so interesting cuz uh yeah, I mean I mean trauma is maybe the wrong word, but like that is on, you know, like the same spectrum of phenomena in the way of like everybody always thinks what they grow up with is normal and like, you know, a moment I'm obsessed with generally when I work with young people is uh, what they thought of other people's houses when they went to them as kids. Because, you know, what you think about other people's houses tells you so much about what you think of as normal. So I made this piece with DYT two years ago and I remember this kid kind of going, oh, I just remember going to my friend's house and seeing uh, seeing his dad light a cigarette off the toaster. And I just went, oh, that's that's, that's beautiful because it's just so clearly that's, this—that's this totally unprecedented event that blew your tiny fucking mind, yeah, you know? Which, yeah. which I think is gorgeous, and we all do that. Which is, no matter how bonkers, we're like, "Oh, that's just what life is like." Um, until we encounter the possibility that things might be otherwise. Mm. Um, uh, yeah, no, like that resonates really a lot with me. Yeah. Mm, mm. Um, because you know, like on a really simple level, I had a sickeningly happy childhood, but um. You know, my mother is a theatre maker and my dad uh, is a primary school teacher who, after hours, um, directs the school musical up in Mount Temple uh, and uh, runs a dance company for boys called Company B, wow. which is about uh, changing attitudes to dance and uh, masculinity um, and was a mime and a clown in the 80s, which I think is how he met my mother. They met on a production of was it The Father. Uh, yeah, my mom was in The Father and my father <laughs> was doing a act at the interval. <laughs> um, but again, you know, which is like, so like not in any traumatic sense, but like I grew up thinking that was uh, what every family was like. And, you know, my mother has a shaved head and we were vegetarians in, you know, kind of North Strand in the 90s. Um, so, I mean, uh, in retrospect, I'd be really fascinated to meet my pals from childhood and find out what they thought of my house when they when they came over, you know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, in, in exactly that way, you know, of... Uh, how we don't even realize how many criteria of normal we have until they're flouted. That makes sense. Totally. Yeah. Do you are you still friends with many of your pals from that
0: period? No. Interesting. And is there a reason for that? Yeah. Um
1: I mean because it was an in- I mean looking back one of the one of the things going on there is class is the fact that like my parents were socially mobile so I grew up middle class. Um but in, you know, a neighbourhood that at the time I think was still predominantly working class, so we were just on different tracks, even though we didn't realise it at the time. Mm. Um, There were complexities there. There's also a thing of, like, we were really good friends, but then two of them moved away again, but that's not unrelated to the class thing, because that's down to precarity and living situation and having to follow the work versus being a civil servant, do you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And then just, yeah, like, I don't know. I feel like even then I was on a bit of a drift away from a particular... Masculinity and uh, my two busy pals weren't, um, so I feel like even if they had stayed, I think we'd be very different, or we are very different people now. I hear from them every so often.
0: Right, and on that um kind of that tracked into a different kind of masculinity. Like, what was that problematic in in just that growing up sense, and kind of anything that's in any way of any other tract when you're growing up can be, you know easy pickings for, for bullying or alienation or, or shaming whatever that might be was that an experience you had
1: yeah I mean yeah I mean it's no surprise to everyone who knows me but I've spent my whole life with people thinking I'm gay right. um, and uh, you know that's not always a barrel of laughs uh, because the people who most feel the need to bring that to you <laughs> or bring that perception of you to you are not the ones uh, who uh, have your best interests at heart do you know mm-hmm. Um so again, um, I think I'm minded. I haven't minded for a good couple of years now. The only time I mind anymore is when people are really rude to my partner Carla because they think she's uh, fooling herself or something, which is still very hurtful. Um, but uh, I, yeah, I mean, like, you know yourself, the teen years are tough mm. if you're in any way not successfully pormi- performing like this hyper-masculine affect or whatever Colum Keegan the poet you know him And I know of his work yeah yeah. Uh, I did his podcast a little while ago possibly on this network as well but uh, uh, he's just he's a beautiful soul I love him I think he's so interesting I just think he he's cares about all the right things uh, and it's just lovely but uh, he was talking about doing poetry workshops in private schools and he said oh, the private schools they're almost more fucked up and he went because you just meet these young men you just meet these young men and they're all undercover and I thought that was just a really lovely way of putting it which is <laughs> you know which is it's this performance that benefits nobody um you know it's this kind of uh, internalized mccarthyism of just don't give anything away don't mm-hmm. give anything away that shows that you uh are failing which you can only do you know you can only fail to be as masculine as you're nominally supposed to or notionally supposed to be mm. do you know
0: yeah and 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 the 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 sad thing about the undercover line which is so gorgeous and cutting it gets to something really that nearly another word like more words can't get to it's like I, i'm sure we all have people or even images of people in our head and that just like the, that cloak never comes off ever and i don't like i it's because you know if i i would i would kind of straddle a couple of different worlds mm-hmm. it's always something that i not struggle with like i embrace i'm i'm it, again that's a privileged thing because i really like i've had a like a chameleonic kind of a ability sometimes in life to you know I was kind of at school simultaneously let's go for like the stereotypical group names but like one of like the popular kids was quite sporty quite athletic in ways I was also kind of like fat and like had a lot of like body shame and stuff also kind of had was like intelligent enough and like musical and like artsy in that way so kind of could wear a lot of different hats but it's really interesting seeing now and I would like I I've kind of made an, an effort, and I, I, you know, for me, it made sense to kind of keep um keep a, a foot in both camps, if that's the right uh, mm-hmm. phrase to to describe it. But you know, seeing say my more like you know sporty friends, and who would be just more traditionally masculine, and who would in, engage in in you know some of the behaviors that are brilliant, like as in we really bond over like you know sports and like uh, um competitiveness, and like that's our way in, and and I love that and they also engage in some of the more problematic uh aspects of like traditional masculinity which is is you know misogyny and you know like low level homophobia and you know you you well homophobia is homophobia and you know you you do you you have your your moments to like and you call that out and then other times you're just like
1: i don't know am i uh, like the vehicle of change for you there's something really complex there cuz like i teach and there is an interesting thing of like Uh, as previously alluded to, uh, I am not a particularly um, hashtag mask man. Um, But then actually I am more masculine than I think I am. Um, To the point where like when I'm teaching, you know, kind of teenagers or whatever, I think sometimes uh, I can say stuff about feminism or, you know, kind of, I think just the world and society generally that's more palatable to slightly lost, reactionary, right-leaning young men. Uh, I can say things to them that sounds more... Palatable than it might be coming from someone who they more readily identify as like an SJW. Um uh, but then you get into that really interesting territory of like how much can you nod along to before you just have to go, no, that's fucking hoop. You know, it's <laughs> right, like yeah. no, that's just not true. Um but then again, you know, most of the time that doesn't come up because uh I think the deep irony of that whole version of like very knee-jerky uh young masculinity now is that like it's not very rigorous. It is very emotionally reactive um and the, the the big irony being that the, that emotional reactivity is what leads them to say things like facts don't care about your feelings do you know right. um uh, because it's it's looking for some solid ground in a world where they feel very lost mm. you know which is oh well facts i can stick to facts um and there's why it's why you have this kind of talismanic you know kind of value attached to things like free speech um and, you know, like I, was, I was working with students up in Inchicore a couple of years ago and I was just really struck because they wanted to make uh, a piece about polarisation and then they put up this improv which was just like a shouty debate and I was really struck by the number of them um, who talked about their First Amendment right <laughs> to, to free speech um, and then other ones who talked about their right to bear arms uh, and I just used to be like Oh, bud, I hate to break it to you. You know, it's like you don't live in America. You know, it's like you clearly just live off American media and you live off American kind of uh, shock jockey, you know, talking points. You know, it's like I can see your YouTube recommended sidebar based on how you talk about these issues. Um, and you live in a different country. You live in a country where we have blasphemy law. You know, um, free speech is extremely curtailed in this country. And whether or not you think that's a good thing, it's just, um. You've just assembled a worldview from the things that feel right to you without any kind of real, I suppose, underlying logic as to how they fit together. Mm. Sorry, yeah, Does that...
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, uh, and it was something you talk, spoke about earlier. Maybe it was, yeah, it's kind of come up a few times in different ways, but, like, what's your identity to,
1: to being Irish? Layered. Mm. So, uh, I was struck by something you were saying about chameleonicism. Yeah, I, I definitely made up a word, but Be- I, I kind of Being chameleonic... <laughs> um, <laughs> Well, just my grandfather was Chinese right? um, and my mother was adopted into a white family. Um, I say Chinese, we don't actually know that for sure, Mm -hmm. because that's the best guess of my biological grandmother, who is a white woman from Waterford. So he could be from fucking anywhere. (laughs) Uh, Racial sensitivity, not being at an all time high in the mid 60s in uh, Walkinstown. I think. Uh, We're not particularly close. Um, So... That's been That's kind of a layered journey really in the fact that like I'm quite white passing. Uh, if I'm with my mother, we both tend to get clocked a lot more. I won this playwriting bursary the um, uh, the Phelan Donlan Award mm. two years ago and at the ceremony uh, the photographer who's, who in fairness to him, English wasn't his first language, but he's taken a photo of me and Veronica and uh, halfway through the photo shoot he paused to say, um, uh, what the please in uh, your bloodline is uh, suspicious. Um, and <laughs> Which is just one of those interesting low-grade things that happens fairly constantly, you know, which is... Uh, and again, like, I don't think it's particularly that people are looking at me and seeing a non-white man. I think what they're looking at me is seeing uh, a failure to be a particular Irish masculine archetype because I don't have curly hair, because I don't have hair, and I don't have blue eyes, you know? Um, uh, so, the, yeah, there's just complexities, I think, sometimes in having at least one invisible identity. Um I sometimes jokingly call myself Mr. Passing, you know, Okay. Uh, I feel very undercover. So, um, in Irishness, amongst other things, mm. um, partly because, you know, like I said, it, again, you know, I was raised by hippies, so I don't find any of like the hashtag relatable banter about fries and uh, Catholicism relatable. Cause that's just not my life. You know, that's never been my life. Um, And then beyond that, I think there's a really weird undercurrent to that, which is this kind of still very hegemonic, very white version of Irishness, which doesn't allow for the fact that, like, actually you can be Yoruba, and Irish. I wrote this play as part of Home Theatre in Dublin 15 a little while ago for a Nigerian Irish family. And that was fascinating just to see how all of those, I suppose, standard tropes existed alongside a totally different cultural upbringing. And like, I'm really obsessed with African-Irish Twitter because it's just a little window into this whole other world, which is. As validly Irish as any other. Is that mm. an answer? Yeah, it is. It is.
0: And then when, like, mm, yeah, it's interesting w- when that conversation with the the English student is, is going on, and, and, <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, and, and like, I don't know. I was just really struck by uh, maybe maybe maybe, and again maybe this is going back to the trauma thing maybe uh, uh, when I think of Irish writers or I think of Irish theatre and I mean that's the thing that we have in common so maybe that's why I'm focusing on it yeah. but, but I I, I, <laughs> I don't know Maybe, and it's so weird because when I think about the things that, that I've written about I guess they are trauma maybe low level trauma but there's like trauma does underlies so much like how fundamental do you think that is to the Irish experience and your experience of Irishness
1: oh like I mean Deeply fundamental. Mm. Um, that's kind of a tautology, but I mean, I was chatting to Jill Greer, who's working at, where where, where isn't she working in London? You know, like who's doing vaults yeah. and she reads at the National and now she's working with Clean Break as a creative associate. Uh, so Jill's brilliant. And uh, because she reads so many plays, I think recently she was a little burnt out on Irish sesh plays. Um, and she was asking me as someone who wrote, you know, kind of, uh, a play in that genre she was like "What? what is the fucking obsession with you know like the play across the night out and in particular what is the fucking obsession you know for a young Irish men with plays about getting off your face um, and there's layers and I think one of them is drama in the sense of I think as a generation when you're so systematically disenfranchised that all you really know how to do is sesh is that there's a lurking subtext there, which is you don't know how to do anything else and that when health comes along, it doesn't feel healthy, Mm. you know? So it is easier just to keep sessioning than to learn how to be something else. Mm. Um, You see that setting in as well, you know? And it is quite bleak. (laughs) I went to a very drugsy school um, and wasn't particularly cool. I had uh, uh, friends who were much cooler than I was, like you were saying yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, And it is that awful thing of... uh, um, the person who's really fucking cool at 19 because they know they've got all the hookups is uh, um, n- not the coolest person at 27 if they're still doing exactly what they were doing when they were 19, do you know? Yeah. There is an arrested development built into that. Mm-hmm. Whatever else your mileage is on this, that or the other. but um, And then the other layer I think was the fact that like I think there's a real emotional constipation to the sesh play, which is the sense that the only reason you can ever own to having a feeling is if it comes from outside you know which is feelings are something the world does to you in the form of substances mm. yeah so mm-hmm. it's a way of talking about your feelings but without ever having to own them that makes sense
0: yeah yeah i think so 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 the no no it's just, it's i'm really interested in this yeah. so it's the idea that and, and what role does the the sesh have in so sorry talk a little bit more
1: well i mean i think like it's our generation's version of uh men who can only uh, express emotion through sentimental songs right after a feed of pints, yeah, you know, which is um, the only way I suppose to write a play about your interiority without being mortified because that's dangerously unmasculine is if you're only if you're writing about like what it's like to be you um, when the world is doing something to you in the form of a couple of lines or mm, do
0: you know yeah yeah it's very interesting I had I again I, I I just really like you're a really deep thinker about these things and it's really it's poking me in a really nice way like um. Yeah, because it it is so fundamental to it, and I, I mean, do do you think about that? Because it's something that it's funny that you say that. Because I, and again, this isn't a judgment on anyone else's writing, but when yeah. I write, I like alcohol and drugs are something that feel like to me inherently untheatrical to the way my brain works. Because okay, yeah, which is interesting. But I think that that more maybe goes to which is funny because like um, I'm not a drug person, but I I love a pint as much as the next person. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Um. But there's always, there's always some, like, I'm much more interested, like, the bigger moment for me, if I'm thinking of, you know, wanting to, like, maximise the stakes of this play, you know, it, it's it got it for me, I'm always like, well, it, it's, a, it's a sober thing. It, it actually wouldn't even come into my zeitgeist that it's a, a drunk thing, because it, it, as you said, that's, like, an outside influence that is, in turn, influencing the insides, if, if that makes sense. So it's just really interesting. It's really interesting to hear
1: you. Yeah, I mean... I mean, it depends how how, how far you want to spin off on this. Um, But there's maybe a really interesting distinction there between uh, action and ritual. Mm -hmm. Because action is where something happens and you can't go back. Whereas ritual is something you can repeat and it'll mean something new every time. Mm. Um, And those are both valid ways of making art. And and, uh, I think it's really interesting because I would agree with you on your suspicion about alcohol. Because I think alcohol is a ritual you know it's a thing we do we go to a place and fundamentally nothing much changes but it's an occasion to feel something in the sense that you go you sit with a bunch of people you have a chat about something um uh, there is a journey even if you don't go, any- go anywhere so that's ritualistic versus I think maybe the more well-made play you know kind of UK model is that something has to happen and it has to be uh, irreversible um, and maybe that's sometimes why sesh plays are easy to Denigrate, or maybe that's why you feel like alcohol—it's ritualistic rather than action-based. You know, mm. because a lot can happen on a night out, but fundamentally it doesn't change very much. Mm. Whereas it sounds like maybe you're more interested in telling stories where something happens mm. irreversibly.
0: Yeah, that make sense. Yeah, it does. Yeah, yeah, it's really interesting. Gosh. That's going to stick with me for a while <laughs> I'm going to be thinking about it on the bus um, um, Yeah
1: And like on a really really stupid like level Which is it's When you take the drugs You make the bad choices Which is always good for drama Absolutely <laughs> But in a way Because it's cheap It's unearned So uh, It's much more interesting To have someone make a bad choice From something a little deeper Sure Than impaired judgement Yeah I yeah? think that
0: rings quite true to me But again but So many of my favourite plays Are the sesh play Yeah That's the thing there, There's no judgement on it in any level But it's just It's always interesting for me like, the, the the work that I make doesn't even necessarily look like the work I admire.
1: Yeah. Which is funny. Yeah. No, I mean, because again, uh, really no judgment intended there. Like, because uh, I mean, the obvious example is Dublin Old School, yeah. which like, I love so much. Like, it gave me one of my very few crises of, you know, artistic confidence where I just went to see it for the first time, I think, in 2014 and went oh well fuck art's over you know it's like just give up they it's won. done now yeah, <laughs> yeah they've won because <laughs> um, I was post Boys and Girls at that point and I was trying to write another Rhymey show and then Long Run it was really good for me because I had to just go cool I can't do that because I'll just write my version of Dublin Old School and it won't work I have to do something different mm. and then I did and I think sometimes it's good to get those but um, but like with anything it's just it's really interesting to look at the reasons people feel drawn to revisit a genre To do it well or to do it badly.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We give it a spin. Ah,
1: yeah, Yeah, let's do it. (laughs) (laughs) Having fixed, yeah, 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 masculinity and drama and (laughs) I think we completed it. Uh, Number three, do you have it? I don't.
0: No worries. Number three. Um, This is a tough question, uh, but here we go. Who is one person who's uh, particularly helped you along in your career?
1: Ooh, one person. I'm going to say the most recent one who I suppose has been in my head a lot because mm-hmm. there's so many people who've been really helpful. But uh, just because I had to revisit the help they offered, which is uh, Madeleine Boughton, okay. who's currently with Creative Ireland. Um, and I think when we had just done Boys and Girls, uh, was with Culture Ireland. Um, but she's brilliant, like super intelligent woman, really kind, uh, like so interesting to talk to about the art and the things that we all do. And, um, and just because there's a, I suppose there's a thought it, it was the right help at the right time mm. in the sense that I had done a fringe show and it had gone better than I had any right to expect and I didn't know what to do next. And it seemed like everybody wanted the second show, um, but nobody wanted to make it with me uh, and nobody wanted to tell me how to write an application. um. And again, I I I imagine there's probably some people listening to that who'll be like, oh, he could have asked me or like I made the offer. And I'm conscious that there's like bloke stuff tied up in the fact that I'm not very good at asking for help uh, unless I know I'm supposed to or allowed to. Um, but Madeline was really proactive about just saying, if you want to sit down and talk about where you can tour this show and what you need to do in order to make that happen, let's meet. Um, and we did. And I think it was off the back of that. The Boys and Girls ended up going to New York and then possibly Moscow, although then there was a huge amount of help there from uh, Matt Smith, who is another person. See, this is the problem. You can't credit one with one person without having to... Because, totally. d- you know, everything, like, it's a collaborative art form. It always yeah. emerges from a... It takes a village to make a play. that was um, in my head, too. Yeah, but I suppose just I think on that because I uh, I think, like I was saying earlier, about you know, um, wait waiting for your administrative skills to catch up with your sensibility, I think... Uh, not dissimilarly there's a dangerous thing can happen where um, you do one good thing and then ev- and then your reward for doing one good thing is you're not allowed to do that again you know because you're immediately catapulted to do you. you have to make something bigger and you don't know how to do that like difficult second album but uh, you're always making your difficult second album because the price of success is having to do something new mm. um, and that's scary you know if you're not embedded in a community of like mentors and more experienced people who can talk you through that mm. and uh, help you along that uh, that arc Um and I try to do that for, you know, kind of younger theatre makers I work with or know or who I feel are struggling a little bit. And I just know now that I'm starting to do it, um, that like you're so happy to. And the only time you're not happy to is when you feel like someone just takes it for granted because obviously you exist for their benefit. You know, it's like, well, of course you'd offer me that help. And you're like, no, no. The thing I'll never say, but I'm thinking is that you're not special. I'm just nice. <laughs> um. And I suppose just I had that happen a little bit recently where like I was helping someone with college monologues and then they just disappeared and never told me they'd gotten in somewhere, which is hurtful because, you know, you're invested in them. You give a shit about them and, you know, it's as close to parenting as I'm likely to, <laughs> to get right, right, <laughs> with right. the economy. And, um, and then I suppose I was just thinking, I was like, oh, God, I really hope I thanked Madeline properly. So I said it to her recently and she was like, ah, look. But, you know, in that way where you want to you want to have been as grateful as you felt. Uh, even if you are not very good always at saying what you mean because yeah. it can feel embarrassing.
0: Uh-huh. Does that make sense? It does, yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah it's something. Yeah, I, I really I really
0: try and like that. It's funny. I said a sentence recently where I was like, <laughs> to a friend, I was like, I'm, I'm just, I'm tired of being vulnerable. <laughs> <laughs> I said that. C- oh, yeah. Because I, I like it's something that I strive for. And I, I, I'm, it's not really for me to say whether I'm successful at it or not, but like to try and say things in the most simple, vulnerable way possible because for me, that's the most... Authentic way I can communicate You know Within reason Like there's There's a time and a place For these things But But it's It's hard when When you feel like You're extending that hand And and it's just Not being met
1: Yeah And actually There's a really interesting Thing there about I mean It sounds like You're having your own version Of maybe uh, You know Coming out stress In the sense of Actually you don't You don't owe everybody You meet the full truth About yourself If today That feels a little bit too or sorry, not even coming at specifically, but more broadly, disclosure. Mm. Actually, you don't have to tell everybody everything about yourself because that's an uneven ask. Mm. It's harder for you, you know. Yeah, and um,
0: it, and, it, and and it sets up like an unfair expectation that that's what I feel I deserve from them because otherwise we're not being we're not we're not this isn't fair. You're mm-hmm. you're not meeting me where I'm meeting you, but like that's that's enforcing my my own moral compass onto them, which I have absolutely no right to do.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think sometimes, uh, yeah like the simplest level is you know people who get really hung up on the whole how are you question and they go you're not really asking and you go yeah but like you also don't want me to really ask <laughs> because how impossible would it be to get everything done if like every time you got asked how are you you really told people <laughs> right 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 <laughs> everybody's on a journey there's a lot going on you know yeah um uh, lies are really handy Polite yeah. lies are really handy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> totally.
0: Yeah. Uh, you said they kind of tongue in cheek about parenting, and it's as likely as I'll ever be to parent in the current economic climate. Yeah. Is is parenting something that you think about and having kids? Something that you think about in just in life? And is the economic climate like a thought that comes at the exact same time?
1: Oh god, gotcha. Well, I mean, like it doesn't help that like uh, my parents settled down. Um, with like unreasonable success, really early. So I think F- Veronica and Kieran were married when Veronica was twenty one, Kieran was twenty five, twenty six. Um, and my ma had me when she was twenty six. So the having a kid by the age your parents were when they had you this ship, you know, sailed, you know, yeah. kind of about eighteen months ago. Um, and like I love chi- I love children, you know, which is uh, I think I'd really like to be a dad, but um. Uh, several things are going to have to change pretty fucking majorly if that's ever to happen. Yeah. (laughs) Which is
0: so... It's it's so... It's something I've been thinking of as well is just like, you know, what I want my life to look like, you know. And obviously, like, families are and aren't a huge part of that depending on what way, what choices you want to make. But I would know fundamentally as well I'd really like to to be a dad and, and, you know, like have a child with someone if that, you know, is the right thing. Um, but it is, it, it, it's huge. And maybe maybe I'm a step behind you in, in my thought process because I'm at the kind of point of thinking where it's like, well, I would like to be a dad and I would like to wheel a buggy, but I'm not thinking about like, how do I afford the buggy? Mm. And like, where where, <laughs> where does the, the the child and the buggy go when 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 i have to work or my partner has to work and and these things like the childcare all all this stuff you know
1: yeah yeah i mean i don't know i mean i don't know necessarily that just because i get anxious about money as soon as i start thinking about kids means i'm necessarily more mature because i think maybe the more mature thing would be to embrace that and find a way of making it work or you know take some money job vaguely related to what i do whereas uh but I don't know. Yeah, mm, mm. It, to me, they're very much just tied up in my head because I think,
0: yeah, I don't know. But the, the removing the financial side from it for a moment, like the idea of like <coughs> having kids and that love of children that you you spoke about, like that is something that would interest you.
1: Absolutely. But I mean, again, uh, I mean, I've, I've just read some very interesting things recently. I suppose about how. Um, uh, weirdly m- men these days are the ones who are more likely to express you know kind of a a longing for domesticity or a nostalgia for for like an imagined domesticity that the, that we feel we're missing out on mm. possibly because uh, it's still a very uneven ask so i mean um like carla my partner works in arts admin uh, and producing and marketing I, I never know how to describe what she does because she does so many things and yeah. she's fucking brilliant at all of them um and you know it's just a thing of it's like um You know, if we were to have a child, it's a very uneven ask, you know, in the sense of, I mean, my work is very compatible with staying home and this and the other. None of her work is very compatible with like fucking pregnancy or what have you. And that's assuming everything goes well, which it doesn't always. Yeah, yeah, it's a whole fucking minefield. Yeah. Um, So, yeah. So, I mean, I think uh, I think it's a it's a it's a less complex longing for us Mm. unless you feel. Unless you resent that inclusion in that <laughs> <laughs> cozy, conspiratorial no of I, blokes.
0: <laughs> no, not at all. I'm actually really interested. It's not something I thought about, but it, I mean, that does make sense. Even like, I mean, on the very basic fundamental thing of like, we don't carry, you know, life in us and it doesn't affect our, like our body, you know, in, in oh, like yeah. the fact like we, you know, morning sickness and like we have to literally go through like a talk about trauma like it was funny Lauren Larkin was just on the, the, oh, yeah. the chat earlier as a parent yeah we, t- we spoke a lot about it uh, which like was was weird I was <laughs> I, like I caught myself I was like god we're talking a lot about that but I was like I am interested and she was interested in talking about it, it it's a really interesting thing but, but it, it, it's to- it, it's not even and I mean You'd like to think that, you know, in your relationship, like certainly me as a man who would like to have a child with a woman, um, you know, you would do your best to to even that out as much oh, yeah. as you could, even above and beyond social expectations. But yeah. I think
1: it's such a deeply entrenched imbalance. Oh, but like the expectations just are are, are so like comically mismatched that I think even if you were to... Going back to the trauma thing of it's, you know, which is you can only drift so far from your norm before you start to feel a little extreme. And I think in that sense, which is, um, you know, like the bar for dads is very low. Like I have a friend who's very cynical uh, having had a child and their whole thing is like the bar for mothers is do everything perfectly. The bar for fathers is don't fuck your children, (laughs) which is like not entirely fair. Like the bar is a little bit higher than that, but like, but I mean, she's getting at something when she says that, you know, which is, it's a thing of it's... um, uh, you know kind of I, I see just like you know like parenting as an extreme form of you know like emotional labour for men generally in the sense that you do a very little and you get praised to the fucking skies do you know mm-hmm. for being barely adequate and I just think uh, yeah however 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 above and beyond the call of duty you feel you're going it's probably not far enough yeah 100% you know? I
0: bet you're right <laughs> right let's give another experience. yeah here we go <laughs> okay number 28 do you have it? I don't one off Ooh, number 28 the question is do you believe in love at first sight
1: <laughs> yeah <laughs> kind of despite myself um, kind of because like to do like a proof from the converse thing of uh, I think disbelief in it is sometimes rooted in the idea that you have to know someone wholly to love them um, And you never do. So in a sense, uh, loving someone at first sight is negligibly less arbitrary than loving them when you know them kind of well.
0: Mm. That's that's so int- No one's ever coming at that from that point of view before. <laughs> well, I
1: mean, it's just, I mean, I was really struck. I read this fucking bonkers Twitter thread recently from a woman who said she'd just moved in with her partner. And right after she'd moved into his flat... Um, he said something like sometimes I wish you were just a nurse or a teacher instead of an academic because then you'd be less threatening or intimidating. And she was uh, ashamed because she felt uh, tricked into being in a relationship with him for, I think, like six years and. Um, and I just thought that was a really interesting complex thing in terms of it's like someone says one thing and you realize oh I was never in a relationship with the person I thought I was in a relationship yeah. with. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, uh, totally. Well, uh, yeah, and I think like that's like that's so true. For, I think that's one of the really <clears throat> it can be one of the puzzling things about anything. Like I mean, I th- it's one of the reasons why I think infidelity can be so hard because I I think fundamentally most of us are, are like I'm single right now, but if 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 i'm to get into a relationship with someone i'm only going to get into a relationship with someone who i think won't be unfaithful on some level i don't think i'm going to think about it that tangibly and if you know if those things arise that i'm going to be with someone who's you know emotionally articulate enough to go like oh hang on like there's something going on here where i like feel the need to like have an affair or to go off with someone else Like i think that's th- the best thing you could do in that Scenario So I think that's one of the things Why like While like Okay there's like There's loads of stuff tied up In like Infidelity Like again going back To like just the masculine thing Of like Mm. There's something very shaming About that On a societal level I think Uh, There's like There's just a hurt thing Of like I thought we had something Yeah Uh, But then it's like I also thought You weren't the person Who would do that I also thought You were the person Who wouldn't Who liked me enough Not to do that I also thought You were the person Who would never want to hurt me In the way that you've Hurt me and, and I mean there's so many Different versions of that That was just the The first one that came to mind But yeah that mm-hmm. way that like Literally Our whole lives can be recontext- I mean like that version Is fascinating because It was It was probably like about Three or four A combination of three or four words You know what I mean Yeah That while well, they're like they're, they're highly problematic And like I mean there's so many things You could talk about What's wrong with them But in the greater Context of Of, of life You know It's mad that something like that Like just someone's Kind of I mean like sexism misogyny whatever it is like it comes out in like four words and you're like wait I didn't really know you cuz I didn't know you were capable of that thought
1: yeah I mean yeah I think it it was really interesting cuz that person went on to reflect as far as I remember that they're saying there was such a temptation to swallow it and pretend it hadn't been said but instead she still at her old lease so she just went back and she went no fuck it we're done we've just moved in let's unmove in Wow, I'm I'm refusing to be with this person I've never met before. Well, <laughs> <Man>. uh, <laughs> I really want I, I really want to hear his like
0: when when his mate like you know when he you know the week before he like to his mates yeah you know like me and Marion were moving in together and then the next week yeah me and Marion are done like I thought you're we moving in together. yeah we did but but then you know yeah I, I said this thing and you
1: know <laughs> obviously it's a terrible thing, but it's just it I don't know yeah
0: that's an amazing example
1: no and actually that thing about Infidelity, I suppose, is like a thing that, you know, as a a baseline level of thing and an anxiety. And um, I was chatting to this playwright in the UK a little while ago when we did workshops together, Somalia Seaton. um, And she, you know, she coined a name for a genre or like was kind of complaining about a genre of play that you never think of as a genre, but totally is uh, a genre. She's like, I just feel like... I'm I'm totally done with seeing plays which were about white people cheating on each other. And I went, oh, yeah, fair. You know, like rich white people cheating on each other, I think specifically was the thing. Um, and a good little chat about, you know, like, wh- why is that a play we keep coming back to? And I think they're saying it's like, OK, so infidelity is immediately high stakes because we can relate to it. But beyond that, I think because it's a really good uh, concrete version or concrete, like, uh, I suppose, actionable version of that experience that cuts through all of life which is uh the moment where it's brought home to you how partial your knowledge of someone you love very deeply is um, mm. and uh and it's absolutely cool that we should keep thinking that thought because there's always more to be said about it but that maybe we should look a little further than why are you having sex with somebody else because actually it's not about that of course you know yeah, it's a, <laughs> it, it's a really interesting thing we you you kind
0: of you kind of illuminated it within me earlier on in the chat where i was talking we were talking about you know uh it was around the vulnerability thing and how much you you reveal how quickly you reveal it yeah. and you know it's one of the things being single now and i'd be really open to a relationship i quite like to be in a relationship mm. with someone if if i you know find someone who i like and they like me and we were one of the things I was talking to about a friend is like uh, <laughs> is, is how to like on, on like if you're dating or like on a on a first date or yeah. second third date whatever it might be I have a real'm I would consider myself quite open and and quite um not not a, not an open book because I'm sure none of us are but I don't really I used to have an awful lot of shame about things that weren't like shouldn't have been shameful you know yeah. what I mean that was just kind of who I am as a person like I remember having this thought at a really young age of um, watching something on telly like Big Brother which were never even things I watched but I remember being like I think it was just something of the fact that the cameras were always on and like you were kind of forced to see you know the the real people or, or certainly an image that they're trying to project of who the real people are and I remember having this thought when I was young being like I'd love to go on that show when my mum and dad are dead Cause, <gasps> wow Because the idea Of them knowing me In that way Like in like I don't know in even Maybe it was even That there might be A, a, a girl sleeping in a bed Beside me Or yeah. something That was so much for me That's
1: so interesting You say that Because uh, On a set of workshops With like this uh, Well respected English playwright Who in light of the story I'm about to tell I feel I shouldn't name um, uh, He was talking about His shit And he was saying Um in a therapy session, you know, like that moment you expect to have but never have where your therapist just says something and a whole little myth in your head just crumbles away and then you're free of it. Well, he said he had one of those because he said, like, I just feel like I'm never going to get to be my authentic self until my parents die. Wow. Um, And there was a whole lot of queer shit and everything tied up in that. And his therapist just said, but it sounds like you think that because you think you are the person your parents think you are or you're really invested in being the person your parents think you are. But you don't have to be and you aren't. And on some level, they know that. And he went, "Oh right, yeah." And he's just put it down and never picked it back up. Really? And then, yeah. And I just I was really fascinated by that because it's just I suppose such a simple thought, but it's it's so hard to feel it as true. Yeah. Um. Rather than just, I mean, it's it's the it's not your fault from Goodwill Hunting moment. <laughs> I, like, I know. I know, I know, but you have to say it like twenty times before you can cry. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's totally, does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It
0: does. It's so funny, but it, it like it's that whole thing of you know, like it, you know, it took me a long, and I'm sure there's a journey to go with it still. But like to even be a fraction of my authentic self with my parents and not live up to you know who 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 they they want me to be. And my, I'm very lucky. My I think my parents, you know, love me in in so many ways. But it it's like um. It's that thing of, you know, when you're getting into, you know, something new, when you're meeting someone new for the first time, of just, of how much to reveal how quickly, and for me, who someone quite comfortable w- with a lot of that, and, like, it's done work on, on being comfortable within that, like, ha- <laughs> how much yeah that's okay to
1: to show quickly. Yeah. It's really interesting. Um, did you see Infinity in Fringe?
0: I didn't, and it's, I'm ashamed of myself. So, over. I mean...
1: Uh, I was chatting to Nessa about how much I like that show Um, and you know Veronica my mother is a clown and clown is very much about vulnerability and process and um, I was just saying I felt Infinity was a beautiful illustration of the difference between uh, telling people a lot about yourself and intimacy because they're not actually the same thing Mm -hmm. because actually there's like a, a, a beautifully packaged version of our pain we can present people with that leaves us feeling in control which is in fact the opposite of real vulnerability or intimacy and I thought uh, Infinity was really striking because of how little Nessa actually told us about herself but how beautifully intimate and vulnerable that performance was because she stood on a stage and went through something mm-hmm. um, in front of us and uh, I really related to that in a sense because actually I don't talk a huge amount uh, to my parents about like my love life or sex life or whatever. Not least because, you know, I've been with Carla for nearly seven years. So it would just be really weird because they'd know exactly who I was talking about. (laughs) Um, And yet, you know, like I wrote Poison Girls when I was uh, 19 and I remember sitting in the first reading um, and... uh, Saying the line, uh, I was semi hard at most and just seeing my dad in the audience, you know, drop his eyes in kind of embarrassment and like laughing about it with him immediately afterward. And I think the really lovely thing about my writing that way is that it's always been this hidden and plain sight thing, which is just my parents know my world includes all of these things. My parents know my world includes drugs, includes Blah 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 Includes this that and the other Without necessarily needing to know What my mileage is on them mm. And in that sense I, I feel very lucky That I get to be a very Integrated person With my parents um, Not because they know A lot of facts But because actually They just really know What I'm like And are cool with that So when I said Like I was sickeningly happy You know Or have a sickeningly happy family I think that's kind of What I'm talking about That mm-hmm. makes sense? Yeah it does Yeah, yeah.
0: yeah that, like, that was one of the things That was really important to me to So, so as to not you know so as to not like especially artistically because you know certainly the work that i think the, the that i need to be making it like um it just would be not good enough for me if it was not being honest i mean what a what an obvious sentence to say but like so the way i had to contextualize that and, and i don't really have to do it so much anymore it's become more of an automatic thought but like even something like this podcast I, I'm like well this isn't for mom and dad. <laughs> yeah. Like this isn't for them yeah, and yeah, the yeah. plays I write aren't for mom and dad. Like they can come and see them that's yeah, yeah, fine yeah. but that they're making a decision to step into my world and it, it it's my world on your terms. On my terms and when I, when I go home I'm I I'll, I'll try my best to be a really good son and, yeah. and to fit into that bracket and that's okay like
1: that's it's a role we play you know. Yeah. And it yeah please. Yeah no there's a really sweet little story that way actually cuz so skating magnificently into onto thin ice and speaking about experiences very different from mine where I have no authority. Um, I was reading a really interesting thing a little while ago on uh, them.us, which is Condé Nast's kind of queer coverage thing about how uh, there's a very particular narrative around coming out, which is quite uh, white, mm. which because it, it relies on the sense of the uh, totally integrated self as the only authentic self. Mm. And they're saying, whereas actually, no, we all play different roles in different circumstances. And it was specifically talking about that in relation to a study that found people from, uh, whose parents are first generation immigrants from a set of diasporas. I can't remember which ones exactly, but that on average, if they are queer, they get less happy after they come out to their parents because their parents just don't know what to do with that information. Which is not to say their parents don't know. They just don't know what to do with this, I suppose, kind of... uh, all or nothing moment where you go here's my truth um, uh, and I think particularly in cultures which are less I suppose emotionally demonstrative in the sense of let's all have a big cry and a big hug and everything um, I suppose the expectations are so earth shatteringly high that your parents can only let you down or hurt you or, um, um, and r- related to that in a way I was, th- I th- I was thinking sometimes there's a, a useful level of social subterfuge to, to, to being different people and that doesn't—that that isn't actually inauthentic. And I was struck by that recently because uh, I was working with teenagers and one of them was talking about how he does drag and how he hates. <laughs> he hates that his loving, supporting parents come to see him do drag because they just make him self-conscious. Uh, and he says you know, he just starts to feel weird and gross because he's seeing, you know, himself surrounded by go-go dancers, <laughs> you know, like through his parents' eyes. Yeah. And actually he can't relax into like, the bit of filth, you know? Yeah. Um. And I was really struck by that. It was like, oh no, that's too much love. That's too much integration. <laughs> that's not enough room to be different people at different times. Do you know? Totally. Because actually, that uh, forecloses on discovering, you know, because you're too busy playing the person you've always been.
0: That makes sense. It does. Yeah. It was funny. Um. John Dennehy sat there a couple of, well, maybe a month ago, and it's a it's a really special. episode Yeah, I was
1: chatting to them about that a little. I okay. Think, after yeah. The fact. Yeah. Yeah. It and it was a really beautiful episode.
0: Yeah. Oh yeah, it was. It, it was. But uh, that was something that. Really struck me that John said was was just about that, like we we talked about those different those different hats, and it was something that like I'm going to quote myself here, but it was something in the moment that like just occurred, to, and it was it was you know it was contextualized through what John was saying, but for me it was that thing of like you know you know I think we were saying if 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 John is, is the sea, it's okay that we're not the same all the time because sometimes it's beautiful day and like it's it's nice calm weather and other mm-hmm. times it's like a storm and it's like choppy but it, it's still the sea. Yeah. You know what I mean? And like that's kinda how that's kinda how it is. And as as well and as well then it's so funny though to, you know, flip that on its head and then, you know, the expectations that that, that, that I have for people in my life, yeah. like namely my parents maybe would be good because it's kind of what we're talking about. Of, of like, what you expect from them and also to be, like, you know... Yeah, it, I guess it all comes down to expe- expectation, but, like, something I've really had to, like, accept is, you know, that they probably will never, maybe... Certainly my, my dad say, like... W- w- we love each other in a very specific way and in a way yep. where like that is not very easy for that to be verbalized and in a, it, maybe i'd never get to experience the love in the language that i experience love and i mean that like physically and verbally and and emotionally but just to kind of it it's hard cuz you it's very hard to remove your own expectations and maybe your own like emotional needs from things but it's also kind of important for for certain
1: relationships to do that cuz yeah yeah, and uh, not in any feels bad sense because to loop that background, that's kind of tragic, mm. in the sense that tragedy is good against good, mm. which is that you've got two people who love each other very much, um, but whose terms and expressions of love just don't uh, tessellate or something. Yeah, yeah, kind of tough.
0: It is. Yeah, it's but it, it, you know it's so it's also so good when you can see little moments of like w- when like they're trying to get there and like and it and it's an absolute failure and it's very awkward but like it's like a real the intention is so noble behind it you know what I mean like th- that, that oh, yeah. can kind of be enough
1: yeah it's really funny you say that because because uh, I think my dad is quite an for his generation quite an unmasculine man mm-hmm. in some ways um but then in other ways you know I was chatting to Carla about this recently that like uh, last year when I was living away um we were very good about staying in contact uh and then we just never fell back into it this year and that you know my mother's really interesting because I tend to buy them tickets because there's not stuff they want anymore and that if we're going to a show together you know so that we have time to hang out uh, she'll always build in you know time for a drink or a sit down and a chat beforehand whereas my dad just tends to be like um uh Uh, okay I'll see you there you know like 10 minutes before the show starts and then we'll sit and we'll enjoy the show and then we will leave Um, and I just think it's interesting that somewhere in his training you know he forgets to build in time for the sociality that he misses because like he would say sometimes that he misses hanging out with me Um, and I had literally just said that to Carla and I got a text from my dad saying uh, do you want to meet for coffee and when we sat down for coffee the first thing he said was oh yeah I realised I was forgetting to actually be proactive about seeking you out that you know if you don't live here I have to I have to do that. Mm. And I was just really struck by uh yeah, his perspective on that journey and mm. actually the two of us maybe converging on a on a a way of being together. Yeah. yeah. That's <laughs> lovely. That's a lovely moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Um, man, that's us. Thank you oh, so much. Oh, there you go, yeah. Thanks so much for coming <laughs> in and doing
1: it. Um, I know you're super busy. Um, Obviously, City Song is the big big thing. So maybe tell us a little bit about that and where we can see it. Cool. So uh, City Song is a play of mine that won the Verity Bargate Award 2017. So as a result of that, it's being co-produced by Soho and uh, The Abbey. It's going to be at The Abbey on the 25th of May to June 8th. Uh, There's two previews, I think, meaning it's opening on the 27th. It's very fancy and exciting. I don't know quite what the dates are exactly for London, but it's mid-June until July. Um, It's very self-consciously a rip-off of Dylan Thomas's Under Milk Wood uh, for uh, uh, Dublin. It's set across one day in 2015, which is why certain things that are now conspicuously present are conspicuously absent. Um, But it's about time and family and... uh, I suppose the same universal human experiences being channeled through the very very specific weirdnesses of different times in irish culture mm. brilliant man <laughs> doing cobra and great thanks for coming in and talking there you go
0: So, guys, that was a phenomenal Dylan Coburn-Gray playing personality bingo. Dylan, if you're listening, a massive thank you to you for taking the time to do it. I so appreciate you coming in and um, us having the chat. It was so lovely uh, to get to know you that little bit better. And as well, go and check out Dylan's work. I mean, I've listed off the plays there. A lot of them are available to buy here. And what I should say is City Song. His debut at the Abbey Theatre is happening very soon. It's May 25th to the 8th of June go and check it out what an achievement it is for a guy uh, as young as Dylan to have a play on the Abbey stage Um, it's so impressive and I can't wait to see it for one so go and check that out Uh, I guarantee you it's going to be good because everything I've heard about Dylan's work um, has backed that uh, assumption up so I have no doubt uh, that this is going to be uh, another one in the locker for Dylan Coburn Gray Uh, go and check out my play too it's the belly button girl it's from May 14th to the 19th at the New Theatre in Temple Bar uh, tickets are on sale now so go check them out at the website there uh, all the details are on my social media um, you can get me on Twitter and Instagram at TeamWar93 uh, and the Squad Productions page as I said we've got a great team it's Romana Testaseca Owen Lennon uh, and Ursula McGinn I'm so happy to have the guys on board and we're having a great time doing it so come and check us out on um, I think you'll really like the play Uh, I'll be frank about it I'm really proud of it and uh, I'd love to pack it out for the week so come and see us and as well get in to see Copperface Jackson Musical lads it might sound a bit bizarre it mightn't sound up your street but uh, I guarantee it's a great night the only reason it's coming back is because audiences loved it we managed to pack the Olympia out last summer and we'd uh, love to do the same this year I'd love for you to see it Uh, it's a real it's a load of fun Uh, it's got lovely heart to it too and uh, gosh I couldn't be lucky enough to be working with a better bunch of people. So, enough of all that. Let's thank the boss woman, Erin Lindsay, for mixing, editing and producing this podcast. To the wonderful Connor Nolan for his gorgeous artwork. To Liam Moore and Anthony Manley for their beautiful team music and to alan bennett and paddy o'leary for keeping the lights on here at headstuff hq and having us aboard the team go check out some of the other podcasts on headstuff and as i said chip something into our patreon that's patreon.com forward slash personality bingo it means the world if you can do it uh, and i will be forever in your debt lads we'll see you back here next week for another episode of personality bingo with tom moran
1: And